You're listening to the Packernet Podcast Network. Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. Third down inches to go. Defeater. 17 to 14. Cowboys out in front. Star begins the count. Takes the snap. All right, welcome into Packers Total Access. I'm your host, Clayton Bailey. You can check us out on Packernet.com. You can find me on Twitter at Packers underscore access. If you want to email the show, you can do that by sending an email to Packers Total Access at gmail.com. Whether it's a question, a message, or just a, you know, like I said, just uh, some encouraging words. We appreciate all the emails. It's been flooded here lately, and we really appreciate it. And uh, yeah, so we're going to kind of lay out what the show looks like today. Um, I'm really excited about how this show came together, um, to be completely honest. Uh, this is one of those, another show where the listeners kind of put it together. And, and I know we have a slow time right now at the moment with, uh, you know, kind of going to be coming out of mini camp and, and stepping into training camp. And we got this little bit of dead period. And I'll tell you what, guys, it's very, very encouraging when you're in one of the, uh, uh, what do you say, the slowest times of the year, and we're getting this much feedback, this much communication from the uh, the fans and uh, and the listeners, and you guys are kind of organizing the shows for me, and I, I got to say, I, it's very much appreciated, and I really, really enjoy doing this. It it allows me to step out of what I normally think of and, uh, and kind of have to dive into something a little different, and what's really cool is the messages that I'm getting uh, you know, making suggestions on history segments and, uh, and you know, topics and things like that. It, it is kind of lining up with the stuff that I do enjoy talking about. So that's a really, really cool dynamic that we have going on. And, and just like I said, messages, we got, got messages here recently that have just really, really um, made me feel good about where the show is. Uh, one came in earlier from Jeremy uh, on Twitter. It's at, I hope I'm pronouncing the last name right, Jeremy, but it's at Rhett's Jeremy underscore Jeremy, and uh, I'm not going to read the message. I kind of feel like it's somewhat private, but it was just really, really cool, man. He, he in a nutshell, basically said he enjoyed the, the story that I told about how I met, met my wife, and, and I guess uh, just those kind of personalized stories in general. He went on to say he really appreciates how Ryan Schlipp does that from time to time, and it really makes you feel like you, you get to know the uh, the uh, the host a little bit, and I completely uh, completely agreed with him, man. It's uh, you kind of form this connection with the people that you want to uh, enjoy content from, and it's important to kind of know what's important to them, and uh, and where they stand on on certain topics without without getting into the garbage that everyday uh, you know life presents you. You know, with people you know arguing over politics and religion and everything else, and we really try to keep that stuff distance. I think that if you've listened to this show long enough, you know where I stand on most of those things. And there's no reason to to bring it up, uh, at least on my side, and argue about things. But it's just cool to have people like Jeremy reach out who uh, 
who kind of let you know what's important to them. And that's what we get with, uh, with the listeners and, and reaching out with, uh, with emails and questions and topics. So with that being said, I'm not going to waste any more time. Let's kind of lay out the show here for you. Like I said, Jeremy, thank you for the message. But we're going to do a history segment that was presented on Twitter through a DM uh, from a man by the name of Tim Kolb. Um, his uh, Twitter handle is at, uh, I, don't, I don't know if I can pronounce it right, but it's C-A-C-A-C-H-E-E-S-E-H-E-A-D. So I guess it is standing probably for California Cheesehead 716. And I believe he sent me uh, emails and messages before. But uh, he has laid out a really, really cool. He just sent me an image from a Facebook group. That's uh, it's called Old Green Bay, and I went and followed them immediately. So if you're on Facebook, if you'll search Old Green Bay, it is a awesome, awesome Facebook page that shows you kind of the history of the Green Bay area, even outside of uh, what what appears to be you know the Packers, just history in general. And I'm all about that type of stuff. So that's going to be a history segment covering a man by the name of Austin Straubel. And you guys heard that name, and you immediately think, oh, the airport. If you've ever flown into Green Bay, it's called Austin Straubel Airport. I think it's actually International Airport, if I remember correctly. But anyway, I had no idea who the guy is. And let me tell you, I learned a ton today. And it, I'm grinning ear to ear because this is a really cool story. So thank you for that, Tim. And then uh, we're going to answer a, a listener email that's asking about uh, some cap stuff that I kind of touched on briefly before. And, uh, and, and whether it, you know, whether he missed it, what I was trying to explain or what's most likely the case, I didn't explain well enough, you know, with, with me being the horrible communicator that I am, we're going to try to uh, organize this in a way that, that you come out understanding his question a little bit better. If you do indeed have uh, questions about, you know, how, how people are using this salary cap loophole right now that we've touched on briefly. And I'm going to try to explain it as best I know how, not, not very long winded, but just kind of give a quick brief brief summary in case he did miss some of the shows where I touched on it a bit and we'll answer that question and hopefully uh, everyone will come away with a little bit more information myself included and then we're going to wrap it up with the coaching staff the 2022 coaching staff and I think this is really really important with the stage that we're stepping into getting ready to go into training camp you know I think that uh the coaching staffs are very, very, very under underappreciated. I really do. You know, when the players step away for these leave of absences and everything, whether it's in between <clears throat> voluntary mini camp and the you know uh, the mandatory mini camp, and then you got training camp in between, these coaches stay, guys, and they're grinding around the clock. And I don't know if you guys love football as much as me. I'm sure you do. Most of you probably love it more than me, and I can appreciate that. But there's just a certain level of appreciation I have for, for guys and gals that are willing to grind. You know, we've got several women coaches in the league now, which is really cool. Um, but uh, it just the way they grind around the clock uh, to put together game plans to try to, try to you know, one of the things that's not talked about enough when it comes to training camp and practices is the limited amount of practice time that these coaches have um, when it comes to the CBA that they all agreed on. And it makes things very difficult at times. So you've got to be well-structured, well-organized going in. I had the uh, extreme honor to go to several Duke uh, college basketball private practices that I was uh, invited to with Coach K. So I've got to sit down and break bread with Coach K a couple of times and uh, and listen to him interview a couple of his uh, captains from time to time. And I got to sit in on a private practice where it's closed to the media. It was just a select few of us business owners that got invited in that made donations to his Emily K Foundation, uh, which is uh, a really, really cool um, 
really cool charity. If you get a chance, you can Google it, check it out. It might be something you would be interested in sowing seed in. I'm not promoting it in that regard. I'm just saying that's why I was there. And the thing that I noticed about Coach K, and I'm not a basketball fan, guy. This is what's hilarious. Like, I hate basketball. And when my, my peeps back in Kentucky found out I went to a Duke private practice the first time, they were like, what are you doing? You say you don't like basketball and you're up there with the enemy? Like what? <laughs> and here's my answer to that. This guy is one of the most successful leaders in the history of college sports. If I can sit at a table or at least in the room with him and pick his brain for two minutes, that might help me not just in uh, in life but in business, with you know, in relationships and marriage. He's been married forever. The, all these things that are important to me. Why would I not? go uh, take advantage of that opportunity. I don't care who he's coaching for. I'm not that kind of fan where I hold a grudge outside of watching a ball game on Sunday. You know, as bad as the Chicago Bears coaching staff has been from time to time, think of Coach Nagy with the Chicago Bears, one of the worst head coaches in the history of the game. If he sent me an invite and said, hey, man, I'm going to I'm gonna do a teaching seminar. I'd like to have you up here. Would you, would you like to check it out? Heck yeah, I'll go. You know why? Because the guy is further along than I've ever been in coaching. And if I, if I can just learn an ounce of what, what he might know that is successful, because he has had success in other areas of his coaching career, I would go to that. So I don't care who the, the coach, you know, the team is that the, the coach is from. I'm all about expanding and trying to learn more than I know now. I think that the second that you stop moving forward, um, you know, you're going to go backwards. There is no sitting still in anything. I really believe that. So anyway, we're going to outline the coaching staff, and I think that's going to be really, really cool. And when I say outline, we're going to touch on Matt LaFleur briefly because, you know, we know enough about him, and I'm going to hit on his record a little bit and just kind of talk there. But then we're going to go on to the offensive coordinator, the defensive coordinator, and the special teams coach so you guys get a little bit better understanding of how long these guys have been in the game, What's their background? And I think we'll all come away respecting them a little bit more and understanding, wow, these guys are all, they're all qualified for the job, the task that's at hand. So with that being said, let's go ahead and get into the history segment. All right. And I'm really excited about this. Like I said, Tim Cole on, or it may, it may be Cobb. I'm so sorry if I'm butchering your name, man, but this is CA Cheesehead716. He sent me a message on Twitter and it said, Clayton, I thought this might interest you. Uh, two iconic names in the history of the city of Green Bay. And I click on the image, and it's from that old Green Bay Facebook page. It says, have you ever heard of the term, and I can't even say it, E-P-O-N-Y-M. I don't even know what that means. It is when a place or thing is named after someone, okay? Like Washington, D.C., obviously named after General George Washington. Two local examples would be Austin Straubel Airport and Lambeau Field. Both Curly Lambeau and Austin Straubel attended Green Bay East, Curly even head coached the football team until 1921. I am not sure what his role was in 1922, perhaps assistant coach. Anyway, Austin played varsity in 1922 for East and was quite the football player himself. He eventually played for the University of Wisconsin. For me, it's cool to find them both in the same team photo in 1922, one famous for football and the other a World War II hero. It gives me additional context when I hear someone flew into Austin Straubel Airport to go see the Packers play at Lambeau. Green Bay was small back then, so there are a lot a lot history coincidences. All right. So and it shows this picture of Curly Lambeau standing off to the side and 
in this large coat. And then two two guys over, one guy over actually, is Austin Straubel as a player. And I'm assuming he's saying this is a Green Bay high uh, picture and maybe co- uh, Curly helped coach them somehow because I do not think this is a, a Packers team photo. I'm almost certain it's not. So anyway, who is Austin Straubel? I immediately said I flew into that airport countless times. And never once did I stop and think who is Austin Straubel, right? So here is his profile, I guess you could say, the history of Austin Straubel. It says, Austin A. Straubel, September 4th, 1904, obviously his birthday. <clears throat> he died on February 3rd, 1942. 42, anytime you see 1942 as a death date, you know what that means. It typically means it's something World War II related. He was a major in the United States Army Air Forces from Green Bay, Wisconsin. Straubel was Brown County's first aviation loss in World War II and Green Bay Austin Straubel International Airport. Uh, was named in his honor. So his early life, he was born to Carl and Alice uh, Straubel on September 14th, 1904. Matt, I tell you, there's a lot of, uh, I read off Bob Harlan's profile and several other people. There's a lot of people, you know, that's connected to the, to the Green Bay football team that were born in September. I was actually born on September 19th. And, uh, I think there's something to that. I think I think that you know people's birth month and what's going on around you know around their life at the time of their birthday. I think that stuff kind of connects with you. I, I, I don't I don't know, man. I've always been able to draw kind of a parallel with personal interests of people and what their birth month actually was. And I think people that were born in September tend to be football nuts. But anyway, he was one of four children and the couple's only son. Austin Straubel's grandfather, H. August. Uh, Straubel was among the early settlers of Brown County, Wisconsin, arriving in 1846. Austin Straubel later joined the army and fought in the nor- fought for the North in the Civil War. So his dad actually fought in the Civil War. How cool is that? Straubel, uh, and I love the fact that he fought for the North. I don't mean to create division. I probably shouldn't even say that, but I, I just, I do. I love that. Um, being in the South, you're probably going, what? What did you say? Yeah, that's just me. But anyway, Straubel played tackle. On the Green Bay East High School's football team, he attended the University of Wisconsin, where he continued playing football. While at UW, he joined Delta Kappa Eppleson, I think is how you say it, fraternity. After graduating in 1927, he returned to Green Bay and worked at his father's business, the Midwest Cold Storage. Straubel married Isabel Lawson Waltel. Uh, in 1936, and they moved to Los Angeles, where they had two daughters, Susan and Victoria. So it says military career. Straubel joined the Army in 1928. In 1929, an aircraft that he was piloting in Michigan caught fire and crashed. Straubel parachuted to safety. On December 7, 1941, Straubel was commanding the 11th Bombardment Squadron, part of the 7th Bombardment Group. Uh, the, the group was stationed at Hamilton Field, Hamilton Air Force Base in California, and their ground support troops had sailed on November 21st for the Philippines. Straubel's squadron was preparing for their flight to the Philippines. The situation was confused. Orders called for some aircraft to fly west while others flew east. Joined by the eight others in, in his crew, Straubel flew consolidated LB-30 B-24 AL-609 via the African route, uh, arriving at uh, Singsafori Field in Malang. Uh, Java, I think is how you say it, at 11.30 a.m. on January 11, 1942. They were a part of a mixed group of B-17s and LB-30s, some of which flew missions over the Pacific, while others, like Straubel, flew over the Indian Ocean. 
In early 1942, in the Pacific Theater of World War II, the Allies tried to prevent the Japanese from occupying Borneo, uh, called the Battle of Makassar, uh, I think is how you say it, straight, at the time. Straubel was commander of the 11th Bombardment Squadron and acting commander of the 7th Bombardment Group. Five aircraft were assigned the group's first mission on January 16th. Straubel led three LB-30s and two B-17s. The Liberators, I love the old names, man. The Liberators, LB-30s, were to bomb the airfield at Lagone, while Fortress's B-17s were to attack ships in, in uh, Monado Bay. Straubel earned the Distinguished Flying Cross for his efforts that day. Straubel, unhappy about the relationship between uh, 5th Bomber Command and his 7th Bomb Group, decided to meet with, with Major General Louis H. Barreton, uh, Deputy Chief of Staff, after meeting with Baradin, he departed for Malang, Indonesia, with three passengers the next day. On February 3, 1942, Major Straubel was joined by 2nd Lieutenant Russell M. Smith, co-pilot, and Staff Sergeant George W. Pickett, flight engineer. The three flying a Douglas B-18 Bolo uh, to Bandung, Bandung, Indonesia, while flying over the Makassar Strait, Straubel's aircraft was attacked by Japanese Zeros and shot down. Straubel man managed to land on an emergency airstrip, but he and the crew died from gunfire. According to another source, Straubel died from burns. So here you've got a guy that, even though they had been attacked in the air, he still managed to land the plane. And it sounds like either gunfire he took before they had to land the plane or after they were on the airstrip is what took his life and, and also burns it sounds like but uh what an amazing hero there uh, a man that spent so much of his life serving our country uh there for the uh the u.s army air forces um at the time it says his legacy Straubel was the first brown county aviator to lose his life in world war ii in 1942 a u.s army camp in australia was named after Straubel. On March 20th, 1946, the Brown County Airport Committee asked the Brown County Board of Supervisors to consider naming the new Brown County Airport in memory of Austin Straubel. And the Brown County Board of Supervisors signed a resolution to name their airport Austin Straubel Field after Straubel, um, after Straubel for his dauntless courage, devotion to duty, and self-sacrifice, and that he be recognized and honored in memorable manner. Straubel buried in Java was reinterred at Green Bay's Woodlawn uh, Cemetery on January 8th, 1949. So if you ever find yourself in Green Bay, guys, if you fly into Green Bay, you're flying into the airport named after him. And I think it would be a good investment of time to take a few seconds, uh, pull up Google Maps, find out where Woodlawn Cemetery is, and go over and visit his gravesite. I'll be honest with you, that's something I'm going to try to do in December when I go up. Had no idea who this man was, nothing about the history, and what are his ties? Okay, he was the first World War II casualty uh, from Brown County, Wisconsin, right there just northeast of Green Bay. Um, actually, no, Green Bay is in Brown County. I'm sorry, I was thinking of Door County. Right there in the county is from Green Bay. Um, and uh, yeah, that's just... Uh, that's really, really cool that the connection, like we said, the picture that, that was posted was him in a photo with Curly Lambeau. Um, so obviously he was a football player 
and from uh, Green Bay, Wisconsin. Man, such a cool story, Tim. I cannot thank you enough, dude, for taking the time and sharing that. I say, dude, it's probably disrespectful. Um, obviously, if people are older than me, I always want to refer to them as sir. Even people younger than me, I usually try to do that. I say, dude, I don't mean any disrespect. I apologize, but thank you so much for taking the time to send me that story. Um, once again, guys, here I am supposed to be one of the history gurus and doing a history segment for Packers Total Access on the Packer Net, uh, Podcast Network, right? And I've got listeners educating me, dude. This is freaking awesome. So thank you so much, Tim. I really, really appreciate you taking the time. Now, um, we're going to go ahead and take a short commercial break, see if we could pay some bills real quick with some advertisements. And then when we come back, I'm going to answer another uh, email question about some salary cap stuff. We all have smartphones, and we all know they're pretty amazing, but they also can be amazingly distracting, especially when we're around other people. So U.S. Cellular wants us to reset our relationship with our phones by putting down our phones for five. That's right, a company that sells phones wants us to put down our phones. And to see what we find, learn more at uscellular.com forward slash built for us. In the hobby, it's not easy being a fan of ripping packs or repacks. We get all hyped up thinking we're going to get some high-value Jordan Love card, but with zero transparency on available cards and hit rates, it's all just a shot in the dark. Until now, introducing Slab Packs from ArenaClub.com, the only repack that provides real value, a complete view on all possible cards, and clear hit rates for each one. Now when I buy Slab Packs on Arena Club, it finally feels like I know what I'm getting. And honestly, the best thing for me and my son is the fact that we're kind of novices into this. When I walk into a card shop with my son, and a card says it costs $40, kind of just taking his word for it that that's a good value. So I appreciate the transparency on grading, as well as just getting excited about seeing what you could potentially get. Right now, you can get 10% off your first purchase by going to arenaclub.com slash packdaddy. Wow, that's crazy offer. 10% off a $400 slab pack. That's 40 bucks right there. Anyways, that's arenaclub.com slash packdaddy for 10% off your first purchase. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Okay, so once again, we have an email from a listener, and let's just uh, go ahead and read this email and kind of set the stage for what we're going to talk about here. This is from, I hope I'm pronouncing the name correct, Jack Locum, I believe. It says, hey, Clayton, Ryan, and the team. First of all, I love the content you all have been rolling out. My question is this. I've been watching the Packers since the late 70s and have to admit I know little to nothing about the inner workings of the salary cap and roster management. Uh, I've just I'm just that guy who loves a cold beer and a football and football on Sunday. Having first of all, that's me too, man. I believe you might be my spirit animal, Jack. <laughs> but he said I'm just a guy who who loves cold beer and football on Sunday. Having said that, what did you mean by quote cash over cap? If I'm saying that correct, LOL. On your previous episode, thank you for all your hard work, Jack in Cleveland. All right, cool, Jack. Well. First of all, thank you for taking the time to email the show. We we certainly appreciate it. And 
I'm going to try to explain this as best I know, okay? And we've kind of touched on it in the past, and you heard me actually say I, I, I don't want to get into cash over cap because I didn't yeah, I didn't really want that episode to kind of be geared towards that. But we're going to answer, answer this email question. It's slow time. I think it's important to hit on. So um, cash over cap. Essentially, what cash over cap is, guys, is when a owner makes a huge signing bonus, pays it up front, okay? When they pay in signing bonus form, what that allows them to do, you know, you've got kind of three entities, I guess you could say, to a contract. You've got signing bonus. You Now, you've got a roster bonus that you can add. You've got options that you can put in place, things like that. But you also have uh, a salary, a base salary. And that salary, you know, can be spread out over the course of the, of the uh, contract as well. And you can structure it in a way where your salary cap hit kind of hits at certain times and you can manage the cap that way. So when it comes to cash over cap, you're essentially writing a huge check for a signing bonus. So you can spread that signing bonus out evenly over the course of the contract. Okay. So uh, the best way to give you an example of this, um, you know, the big poster child right now are the LA Rams. Okay. And, and again, I don't want to create division. I don't want to start an argument. I kind of felt like we were on the cusp of having an argument with one of the listeners here recently because they disagree with cash over cap and, and, uh, voiding years and things like that. And, you know, I respect that opinion. I really do. Um, at the same time, um, I was always a guy that I want to see the books balanced as you go. I, I love seeing contracts structured in a way that you're paying the majority of the money up front, and then on the backside, you can either get out of the deal or you get salary cap relief as time goes on, okay? Well, with cash over cap, like we said, this is a loophole that teams are using, especially, I want to say, I, I used to believe in in here really recently that only the wealthiest of owners can afford to do this. But now we're starting to see even, uh, you know, teams that don't have wealthy owners like the Green Bay Packers and like the Buffalo Bills that, that might not have as much money um, as far as marketing and things like that, that they're able to do this with cash over cap. So, again, you take the signing bonus, you stretch it out over the course of a contract, and it allows you to minimize the hit on the salary cap right now. I'm going to give you a good example. The LA Rams just won the Super Bowl, okay? And everyone who says that disagrees with me, this is what I was getting at, not necessarily disagrees with me, but disagrees with the philosophy of cash over cap and voiding years, things like that. They always say it's going to come due. It's going to come due. It's going to come due. This is going to hurt you in the long run. Well, there still hasn't been a team that it's hurt in the long run. I'm going to tell you why. I heard Andrew Brandt say this on a podcast, and it really hit home with me. The Super Bowl champion, L.A. Rams, right? They won the Lombardi Award last year, the Lombardi Trophy, okay? Last year, you know, when you do a deal like this, if if there comes a time where there's a dead cap phase where you're going to have to, uh, you know, take care of dead cap from one of these deals, you know, obviously that hurts your football team. Well, guys, this last year, they won the Super Bowl. They went and got Von Miller. They went and got OBJ. They got all these players, you know, Jalen Ramsey a few years ago, all this stuff put in place, right? Just played, paid Aaron Donald a crap ton of money this year, but let's go back to last year. They won the Super Bowl in a year where they had the third largest cap penalty in NFL history, $21 million cap penalty. They had $21 million of their cap last year allocated to Jared Goff, who played for the Detroit Lions, and they still won the Super Bowl. Guys, the third largest cap penalty in NFL history. And people say, this is going to affect your team. That's a year where that's a superstar player's salary cap hit. 
that they don't even have on the team. You could have went out and got one of the top receivers and structured it in a way where you had $21 million in debt in, in salary cap hit for this year. But they didn't even have the player on their team in Jared Goff. And I'm not suggesting that Jared Goff is worth that money. And I'm not saying Jared Goff is a superstar. I'm just drawing a parallel that they were minus that much cap room that could have landed a superstar player, and somehow they still end up winning the Super Bowl. So you can, you're not going to convince me that doing cash over cap and voiding years is going to affect the team in a regard where it's going to prevent them from competing on down the road. The salary cap is going to continue to increase. I think this loophole is going to be closed in some way, shape, or form. I really do. I think that they'll come to an agreement because the salary cap is what makes the league go from a stance of of competitiveness. It's why it's the only league, in my opinion, in, in sports history where teams can go from worst to first that quick. I mean, you've seen it with the Dallas Cowboys way back in the day. You know what I'm saying? They went from the worst team in the league to the best, and when the salary cap was introduced shortly after that, um, it all it did was made things even tighter. And I, I really, I want this loophole closed. But until they close it, guys, this is a necessary evil in running a football team. Now, here's the key that Andrew Brandt pointed out on that podcast. He said, the reason the Rams were able to do it, everybody says, F them picks, right? That was what Les Snead, their GM, said. F them picks, F them picks. Well, what they don't mention was how they hit on some of the late-round picks. You have to hit on the late-round picks in order to make this philosophy go, okay? It's very, very important that the bottom of your roster is strong, too, if you have a huge cap penalty sitting somewhere from cash over cap. So, with that being said, I'm going to look at, um, I want to look at, Matthew Stafford's contract, and this is a great example of cash over cap, and it's the same one that Andrew Brandt used, and I'm going to use it here. His contract is a four-year deal worth $160 million, okay? But here's the kicker, $60 million in signing bonus, okay? $60 million in signing bonus, so you spread that $60 million out over the course of five years where they have a potential uh, fifth year in 2026. So literally the signing bonus is spread out at $12 million flat over the next five years. Okay, stay with me here. The base salary this year for Matthew Stafford is only $1.5 million. You do the math, okay? And it's the same next year, $1.5 million next year. That means the total cap hit for this year, for 2022, for Matthew Stafford, a Super Bowl winning quarterback, whether you think he's a great quarterback, a good quarterback, average, whatever, I personally think he's a great quarterback. I really do. I think I used to think he was a good quarterback. Now I think he's a great quarterback. And when you look at his downfield accuracy, deep accuracy that he showed last year and, and putting the right system, be able to play off the run and having the, the right targets to throw to, I'm not saying that's going to be the case this year, but it was last year. And you get him a cap hit of $13.5 million, that does not happen if you do not do cash over cap. And the way that Andrew explained it is cap is simply accounting. It's accounting for the money within the contract, okay? And cash is the bonus, the signing bonus spread out over the life of the contract. Now, here's what's really cool. To the best of my knowledge... Even though, like this year, their cap hit is thirteen point five million. Next year, it jumps to twenty million uh, with an option bonus of sixty five hundred. Option bonus can get very, very tricky at times. We won't touch on that right now. 
49.5 million is the cap hit for 2024, and then 50 million, 50.5 million in 2025 is the cap hit. The way it sits structured at the moment. Now there is a roster bonus involved there. So when you look at the dead cap guys for Matthew Stafford, the dead cap this year is 63 million. The dead cap next year is 49.5. The dead cap in 2024 is 36 million. That's 13 millions in savings if they ended up cutting loose Matthew Stafford with the way that Spotrack is showing this contract structure. Why is that? Because the base salary in 2024 jumps to 31 million. 31 million plus the 12 million signing bonus that we said was spread out over the life of the contract plus a 65 uh 60 uh I'm sorry 6.5 million dollar options bonus cap hit comes to a total of 49.5 million with the cap penalty of 36 million meaning they could cut him loose and save um roughly 13.5 million dollars against the cap in 2025 the cap hit jumps to 50.5 million dead cap is only 24 million so you can kind of see how that's structured right? And how that plays into what they want to do. The thing that sticks out about this contract is a two-year window. They're looking at this as a two-year window with Matthew Stafford. Guess what will happen in 2024? I'll just about guarantee it. When that cap hit jumps to 49.5, they'll convert even more money over to bonus and they'll tack on two to four voidable years on the backside, keep the salary cap number down, and they're going to continue to play with him if indeed they're happy with the production. So it gives you multiple options, and I'm sorry, it still hasn't come to do, guys. I do not want to see rosters created this way. I would much rather have an NFL where the salary cap actually means more, right? Because it's going to create more competition. All the teams, uh, I don't. What you got is you've got some teams that are sprinting towards this philosophy of cash over cap. You've got others that are avoiding it like it's the plague, and then you've got teams right in the middle like Green Bay that are kind of dabbling in it a bit. It scares me a little bit to just dabble. You either go all in or you go all out, in my opinion. But I think Green Bay is starting to lean into that area where they're being more aggressive, and I agree with it. Guys, look, I don't like change. Nobody likes change, and that's exactly what this is. But you've got to understand, that's how business operates. In my businesses, in my personal life, this is how I've had to operate. I'm the most conservative person from a standpoint of I don't like to take huge risk. I like to be that tortoise in the race, not the rabbit. I want to be the guy that's slowly chopping wood on a daily basis and working my you-know-what off. And then at the end of a year's time, look back and go, all right, there's the fruits of the labor Now we can focus on the next target, the next task, the next project at hand, right? And get even further ahead. But what I've had to learn a long time ago when it comes to business is you've got to be willing to change. You've got to be willing to evolve. And that's exactly what Brian Gutekunst and these Green Bay Packers are doing. They're they're stepping outside of that comfort zone a little bit. And until you show me the team that it's completely screwed them up doing this, and knowing that the salary cap is going to continue to go up. And again, what Andrew Brandt said, you've got to be able to hit on late-round picks. What have the Packers done so well with David Bakhtiari and some of these other offensive linemen that they've hit on late? I mean, it's huge. It's absolutely huge. So, um, you know, again, the old quote really comes into play here uh, more than ever when it comes to being a fan of the Green Bay Packers and looking at how this thing's changing. And even as a business owner in my personal life, if you don't like change, you're going to like irrelevance even less. That's the quote. If you don't like change, you're going to like irrelevance even less. Could you imagine the horse trader way back in the day? And you may be going, this is an extreme comparison. No, it is not. This is how things operate in the world. 
You can bury your head in the sand and pretend like this isn't an issue or this isn't something that's important, but you're going to get passed by. Imagine the horse trader when he's seen the first automobile. Imagine that. <laughs> yeah, okay, we'll see if that works. I'm going to continue to sell horses. This has been proven time and time again. This works. And then, boom, look at the Ford family. Now, I know they've got a sucky football team. <laughs> There's no denying that. But look at what they've done in the automobile industry. It's the same thing with, with anything else. Look at Tesla. Whether you like Elon Musk or not, this dude has done so well making electric cars and being, being extremely profitable with it, right? You can't deny that. Now, I know many people being in a conservative state and, and, and being down here in the state of Tennessee, I know many of my friends who we, in most cases, agree on some of the political stuff. Some of it we don't. Some of it we do. I, like I said, I'm, I'm right there in the middle. I'm not a Democrat or Republican. I'm, I'm, I'm a part of the common sense party. And both these parties have lost their damn minds, just to be honest with you. That's just being real. But anyway, they would, they, I remember them saying, this what a waste of time going away from gas-powered automobiles and diesel-powered automobiles and thinking that you could build an electric car. And they laughed at him. And look at where the industry's shifting now, especially with the way that things are going, you know, with fuel uh, fuel shortage across the across the world and, and all of that. It just, I say all that, guys, because you've got to stay with the times. And when you look at what teams, it's a copycat league. When you look at what works across the league, I mean, they, when you look at, some of the I tell you another one is Jimmy Garoppolo. Another example. We I think we all agree we hate the San Francisco 49ers. I can't stomach half their fans. Well, probably three quarters of the fans to be honest with you. I got a buddy sick uh, sick note. His name is Wayne. He lives over in Scotland. He's listening to the podcast going right now. You you saying you can kiss my rear because <laughs> we are good buddies and he's a San Francisco fan. I think the only reason I tolerate it is because his brother's a Packers fan. But that's neither here nor there. But I, I say that because. Um, look at the San Francisco 49ers, Jimmy Garoppolo. Guys, they, they're carrying a quarterback. They carried a quarterback last year with a huge cap hit, huge. And they didn't even know if he was going to be the starter. They're in the same situation this year. How are they able to do that? The salary cap isn't fake. They're just projecting into the future exactly how things are going to play out. And they're taking advantage of signing bonus. And it's structured in a way that if he gets traded, then they're going to free up a ton of cap. There's there's more than one way to skin a cat, Right. And I'm telling you, the Packers, I think, are on the right track in managing this. I think they're touching their toe in the water just a little bit and going, okay, yeah, we can make this work with Aaron Rodgers. Okay, we can make this work with Adrian Amos, throw a couple avoidable years on the backside, because the way the roster looks in two years, it's not really going to affect us that much, right? We showed you two two episodes ago how you can balance the books for next year. It's basically done if they roll the cap over to next year that they have free right now. Yet we had all these Twitter warriors not too long ago. I say all. They were they they were in the minority for sure. And they act like salary cap geniuses and they want to put tweets out like they like they're reinventing the wheel or something. But then as soon as a deal happens like this, they they had nothing to say about the Aaron Donald deal. You know, the big Aaron Donald deal that just landed that they said was just impossible because the salary cap wouldn't permit it. The same thing with Matt Stafford. I'm telling you, there's ways around this, and thank God we've got Russ Ball and Brian Gutekunst, who we're dubbing, I don't know if you've seen the Twitter picture, but we're dubbing uh, 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 Brian Gutekunst as the Wolf of 1265 Lombardi. <laughs> it was just really, really cool by Justin, the, the graphic that he put together for us. But anyway, hope that answers your question there, uh, 
Uh, Jack, I really, really appreciate you taking time to reach out, man. And uh, it's, it's nice to hear that we got a Packer fan there in Cleveland. So, all right, now let's shift gears and let's talk about this 2022 coaching staff. It's important to touch on it now because we're going to be stepping into training camp, and these guys are putting in a ton of work right now to make sure everything's structured in a way that they can maximize the limited practice time that they have coming into training camp. Again, guys, okay, this segment is – uh, the goal is to get us a little more acclimated to the top coaches on the coaching staff, the head coach, the offensive coordinator, defensive coordinator, and special teams coach, okay? And we're going to do that in rapid fashion. We're going to get you guys out of here as quick as possible. So, obviously, Coach Matt LaFleur, you guys know he's my man crush. There ain't no denying it. It has nothing to do with his looks. It has to do with that record I'm staring at right now at 39-10. and 10 with a 796 winning percentage. I believe that's in a regular season, if I remember correctly. Uh, yeah, that does not include playoffs. With the playoffs, I think he's over, um, if I remember correctly, 800. But he is – I don't care what anybody says. Numbers are numbers. We're three years in, and this dude is the winningest coach in NFL history. I love Matt LaFleur's approach. I think he connects with the younger players extremely well. He's he's the perfect balance. He knows what he needs to do as far as uh, setting the stage for his coaching staff and keeping things positive and making sure things continue to move in the right direction. So obviously Matt LaFleur, <clears throat> excuse me, he is uh, 42 years old, uh, one of the younger coaches in the league really when you think about it. But um, if you were to break down his full coaching history, I think it's important to touch on this. He got his first coaching break in 2003. As you may, may may or may not know, he went to Saginaw Valley State. That was the college he went to and uh, got his first uh, first coaching uh, gig there at the college level um, at 24 years old. Division 2A Saginaw Valley State is alma mater. He was offensive assistant. He spent two years in Central Michigan as an offensive assistant. He spent one year in Northern Michigan as the quarterback slash wide receiver coach. Uh, and then in 2007, he spent a year in Ashland as the offensive coordinator. Then he got his first NFL job at the age of 29 years old in 2008. You've heard him talk about this in the past in press conferences, but he was with the Houston Texans for two years as offensive quality control. Um, then he moved on to the Washington Redskins in 2010 at the age of 31. He was the quarterback's coach there for four years, and you guys know during that time, Washington actually had quite a bit of success. And then in 2014, he switched back to college as the quarterback's coach uh, for Notre Dame. And then immediately, he only spent one year in college there in 2014. He jumped right back into the NFL. He was the quarterback's coach in Atlanta, as you guys know. Had a lot of success there with Matt Ryan. He was there for two years. Then in 2017, became the offensive coordinator for the Los Angeles Rams. Obviously, immediately got a coaching gig in 2018 as the offensive coordinator for the Tennessee Titans. And then offered the job in Green Bay there in 2019 at the age of 40, his first head coaching job. So the thing that I recognize the most about Matt LaFleur is when he was at Tennessee, their offense didn't put up great numbers. That's why I credit Mark Murphy so much with this hire. Because when they hired him, what's every fan do? Anybody who kind of keeps up with the game somewhat, you immediately go back, well, what did Tennessee do last year? And their offense was nothing nothing extravagant, right? And I remember thinking, why in the world did they pick this guy? And it's because we didn't see the interviewing process take place. He absolutely knocked the interview out of the park, according to Mark Murphy. And you got to give kudos and credit to Mark Murphy because by hiring Matt LaFleur, obviously you see the success that they've had um, under Matt LaFleur. Like I said, the winningest coach in NFL history. So <clears throat> let's move on to offensive coordinator. You guys know, uh, you know with uh, Nathaniel Hackett moving on to Denver with his first head, head coaching job, you have Adam Stenovich being promoted. 
and he's promoted to offensive coordinator. I wanted to kind of highlight a little bit of his career. He actually played football. First of all, he's from Wisconsin. A lot of people don't know that. He graduated from Marshfield High School in Marshfield, Wisconsin. At Michigan, he earned a bachelor's degree in history. That's my kind of guy right there, obviously. (laughs) So, playing career in college, Sinovich took over as a starting left tackle at Michigan his sophomore year. Guys, when you start at left tackle, arguably the third most important position on a football field at a major university like Michigan, your sophomore year, you've got to be able to play ball, right? And that's why the the Packers' offensive line has been um, so so able, I guess you could say, and, and flexible to to be able to plug and play people, even at the left tackle position, think about it. You know, with with Sinovich obviously being promoted to offensive coordinator, but he primarily worked with the offensive line last year. You kind of see who helped coach Josh Nyman, right? You got to see um, who helped coach Elton Jenkins at the left tackle position. He's someone who who knows what he's talking about when it comes to offensive line. And I think that's huge for the Green Bay Packers with the cold weather that we play in, and obviously us wanting to gear our offense around the running game. Um, he was named the All-Big Ten first team in 2004 and the All-Big Ten second team in 2005. He was also a recipient of the Hugh R. Raider Jr. Memorial Award as Michigan's top offensive lineman in 2005. So under the NFL pre-draft, prior to the draft, it was reported that Sinovich struggled with speed pass rushers and would possibly move inside to guard at the professional level. Um, with the Carolina Panthers, after completing his career at the University of Michigan, Sinovich was not selected in the 2006 NFL draft, so he went undrafted. Within hours of the draft, Sinovich was signed by the Carolina Panthers. After uh, preseason training, Sinovich was released. The Green Bay Packers actually signed Sinovich um, to the practice squad during the 06-07 season. This is something I'm just now learning. I had no idea Sinovich actually played for the Packers on the practice squad. Um, He was re-signed by the Packers as a reserve uh, slash future free agent January 1st, 2007. The Packers designated Sinovich eligible for play in NFL Europe in 2007, and he was drafted in the first round by the the, uh, Amsterdam Admirals. He returned to the Packers following the NFL Europe season, but was released as part of the team's final roster cuts before the 2007-2008 season. Um, he spent time with the Dallas Cowboys on May 14th in 2008. Stenovich was signed by the Dallas Cowboys. He was released on August 29th to allow guard Larry Allen to re-sign and retire as a Packer. Uh, Houston Texans, three days after his release from the Cowboys, Stenovich was signed to the practice squad of the Houston Texans on September 1st, 2008. He spent the 2009 season on the team's practice squad as well and was re-signed to a future contract on January 5th, 2010. On September 4th, 2010, Stenovich was cut by the Texans. So then he steps into coaching immediately, right? And um, at the conclusion of his playing career, Sinovich moved on to coaching. In 2011, he joined the Michigan staff as a strength and conditioning intern. In 2012, Sinovich remained on staff as an offensive graduate assistant coach. Um, In 2014, he moved on to Northern Arizona. Sinovich was offensive line coach at Northern Arizona. Then he moved on to San Jose State. He was hired by San Jose State in February of 2015 to be offensive line coach under Ron Carragher. San Jose State fired Carragher after the 2016 season, so obviously the whole coaching staff gets scrapped. San Francisco 49ers came calling in 2017. Sinovich joined Kurt Mallory's staff at Indiana State for a brief time before being named assistant offensive line coach for the San Francisco 49ers. And then obviously knowing that scheme, knowing that system there with uh, Shanahan, 
the Green Bay Packers on January 18, 2019. Stenovich was hired by the Green Bay Packers as their offensive line coach under then under head coach Matt LaFleur on March 1st, 2021. Stenovich was promoted to offensive line slash run game coordinator. So, and, uh, and then on January 31st, 2022, obviously this past offseason, Stenovich was promoted to offensive coordinator when Nathaniel Hackett left for the, Bron- uh, the Broncos. So in uh, 2021 there, you see Stenovich was promoted to offensive line slash run game coordinator. So this is the guy that's been behind the scenes. Our new offensive coordinator has been behind the scenes coordinating the running game. And we all know A.J. Dillon, Aaron Jones, that that running attack that the, that the Green Bay Packers have. Um, you know, yeah, we like to pass a lot, but I think I think everybody would agree that the running game has been pretty solid. Sinovich has been the guy kind of directing that and moving, uh, you know, pieces into place and all that stuff. So, obviously, Buckus now steps into the offensive line, steps into that role, the offensive line coach role, and now Stenovich will be our offensive coordinator. I'm really excited to see what happens with the running game. Uh, this year and uh, personal life just a little nugget Sinovich and his wife Katie they have four children so there is your offensive coordinator I think it's important to outline that I learned a few things there myself and uh, I didn't know that he had kind of bounced around the league like that I think that goes a long way with the players you're coaching it's one thing to um, you know, most superstars don't end up coaching. I mean, I think we would all agree to that. You don't you don't hear about Hall of Fame players very often coming back and coaching, mainly because of the grind. But when a player steps in as a coach and another player can look at him and go, wow, this guy did bounce around the league on and off practice squads. He knows what he's doing. He just didn't have the talent, but he understands the game. I think that goes a long way with players. So that's pretty cool stuff. Let's move on to Joe Barry, our defensive coordinator. Obviously, um, he was hired last year. Um, I remember Matt LaFleur catching so much flack for this hire, guys. I mean, it was unbelievable. Ross Tucker, I'm a big fan of. You guys heard me talk about it. He actually said, I do not understand why you would let Petten go. They had a solid defense to hire this no-name Joe Barry. I think they take a step back, and lo and behold, boom, they blow up, and the defense really steps it, uh, steps it up to another level. I love Joe Barry, but he got his first uh, defensive coordinator job um, actually, let's just go from the top, and this is going to take a second. I'm going to try to hurry here. I don't want to bore you with just reading names, but um, got his first break as a coach in college in 1994. He was 24 years old. I think that was the same age that Matt LaFleur was uh, with his first coaching job. USC graduate assistant for two years. Then he moved on to Northern Arizona where he coached the linebackers. You guys know that Ryan Slip covered this well when he was hired. It was, hey, this is a linebacker guy. And we all, isn't it amazing for the longest time, A.J. Hawk retired. We didn't have a middle linebacker. We were always trying to fill a linebacker void. And everybody was saying they need to draft a linebacker high. And it's, the Packers don't put enough emphasis on the linebackers, the inside linebackers, that is. They don't They don't think it's that important and blah, blah, blah. Lo and behold, Matt LaFleur recognizes it and says, you know what, let me go get my guy Joe Barry. And, uh, and you know, he's a linebacker guru, inside linebacker guru. Let's, let's bring him in and let him coach these inside linebackers. They take a no-name Devondre Campbell, and he becomes the second-highest PFF-graded inside linebacker in the entire league. He coached linebackers at Northern Arizona for three years, then moved on to Nevada slash Las Vegas as a linebackers coach in 99. Uh, got his first NFL job in the in the year 2000 with the San Francisco 49ers. He was an assistant coach. Then he went to Tampa for the next what looks like uh, one, two, three, four, five, six, seven years, I think. Uh, six years as the linebackers coach in Tampa there in the early 2000s. Guys, you remember that? You remember that time when uh, when the linebacking core, especially the inside linebacking core for the Tampa Bay Buccaneers running that Tampa 2 defense was solid? I think it was Derek 
Brooks, I believe. I may be screwing the name up, but he was the linebacker coach there from 2001 to 2006 in Tampa. Uh, 2007, 2008, he was with the Detroit Lions as the defensive coordinator. Um, and 2009, he went back to Tampa as a linebacker's coach again. 2010, he went to USC as a linebacker's coach, then broke back into the league in 2011. He was with the Chargers for four years as linebacker's coach, got a defensive coordinator job there with the Washington Redskins in 2015 and 2016, and then went to uh, the LA Rams with Sean McVay for four years. He was the assistant head coach and linebacker. Uh, coach guys assistant head coach is nothing to just shoe you know shoe at I'm telling you when you're the assistant head coach you are the second in command and uh, I think there's a reason that he was appointed I think he is one of those guys that's a unifier he knows he understands people and you see it I you know I tweeted out the picture of him at OTAs where he was laying on the ground looking up at a linebacker or a defensive player that was stretching and I remember thinking, and I said this in the tweet, this guy understands people's skills. Leaders Eat Last, heck of a book. You ought to go read it. It is an awesome book. Leaders Eat Last, um, you know, just the art of, of being a leader, leader, you know, servant leadership. One of the keys when you're speaking to somebody is if at all possible, you never talk down to people. First of all, you praise people in public and you criticize them in private. It's not the opposite. Some of the worst coaches in history, they criticized in public and praised them in private. I'll tell you one that comes to mind. That is uh, our very own John Gruden. John Gruden, you know, yeah, he he done some despicable things this last year, right? Whether you agree with the punishment or not, that's not the point of this story. The point of this story is it came out now just how bad of a leader he was behind the scenes. They said he would talk crap about players in a meeting. And he'd be in there with other team captain players and coaches. And then he would step out in the hallway, pass that player, and treat him like he was his best friend. Now, you may be thinking, oh, well, that's just politics. You know, he's a head coach. you got to do what you got to do. No, it, it, forget how it may or may not affect the player that he was being two-faced to. But think of the players and the coaches that were in the room having heard that and seeing how he acted to their face. Do you think they trusted him more or less? Probably less, right? Bad signs of a leader. So I say that because Joe Barry was down lower than that player. And that that is leadership 101. Put yourself below them to bring down any walls that might be, you know, preventing you from teaching a certain aspect or, or getting through to a player in that regard. Um, it's huge. It's just leadership 101. I think Joe Barry just oozes of it. So uh, 2021, obviously, defensive coordinator. And then this year will be his second year as defensive coordinator. I'm really, really excited to see what Joe Barry does this year with this defense. We know they are stacked. They're locked and loaded for a big year. Got one of the best secondaries in the entire NFL. Got one of the premier up-and-coming edge rushers in Rashawn Gary. Oh, by the way, Preston Smith isn't too bad himself when he's at the top of his game. You got Kenny Clark anchor in the middle. You got Devondre Campbell. Like I said, the second highest graded inside linebacker there in the middle. And there was a quote that came out uh, today, actually, where Devondre Campbell was talking about Quay Walker. And I think it's really, really worth it to read this because it is really, really cool. Here it is right here. So Devondre Campbell tweeted this out, actually. He said four hours ago, he said, I tried to help and give as much advice as I could, even, even though he doesn't really need it. He already a baller, laughing emoji. Very smart young man with a great future ahead of him. And that was him speaking of Quay Walker. Um, Quay Walker actually said about Devondre Campbell, I watch him a whole lot. 
just try to learn as much as I can from him. So you're already seeing that chemistry form at the inside linebacker position. You might be able to hear it in my voice, man. I'm grinning ear to ear. I can't wait to see Quay Walker line up right beside Devondre Campbell and Joe Barry get really, really creative with this defense this year. So let's move on to special teams coordinator. We'll wrap this big bear up. This is one of the hires that I'm most excited about. Um, Rich Bisaccia. Rich Bisaccia was the interim head coach when John Gruden got ran out of Vegas last year. And, uh, guys, he went 7-5 and five as a head coach. And I know you might think that's silly. Oh, well, that ain't a big deal. He wasn't really the head coach. Okay, he was the guy in charge. He was thrust into the spotlight. And, oh, by the way, they just happened to make the playoffs. 7-5 and five record. You know, how many, you know how many coaches have four years at a shot at head coach and they can't even crack the 500 mark? And this guy steps in in a flurry, an absolute crap storm of bad negative media with everything that happened with Gruden, and he goes seven and five. That's just amazing to me. But here's what I want to: re- I'm not going to read all these off, but I want to just tell you how long this guy has been coaching special teams and just football in general. He got his first break in 1983. He was 23 years old at Wayne State. Okay, he was a defensive back sp- slash special teams coach. He has been a special teams coach. As far back as 1983, let me put that into perspective. Your host here, Mr. Clayton Bailey, right? I'm so old I fart dust. I was born in 1982, guys. I was one year old when he broke into his coaching career. He coached in college from 83 to 2001, okay, what, the year after I graduated. He had been coaching that long in college football. In 2002, he steps in with the Tampa Bay Buccaneers as special teams coach. So you see that? I just noticed this. I, I had no idea. Joe Barry was the linebackers coach in Tampa when Rich Basaccia was the special teams coach. Think they got a little bit of chemistry together? That was a strong, solid team there in the in the uh, 2000s in Tampa for sure. So he stayed with Tampa from 2002 until 2010. Here you see the last three years he was there. He was assistant head coach. I think that's worth noting again, just like Joe Barry having experience with assistant head coach. It's huge. Um, being the right-hand man to the man that, that's running the whole show. In 2011, he went to the San Diego Chargers. He was assistant head coach there his last year. He spent one, two, three, four, five, six years, I think, five, no, five years in Dallas as assistant head coach and special teams coordinator. And then in 2018, 2019, back with the Raiders, assistant head coach, and then obviously Vegas. So that Raiders stint actually stretched four years. And then obviously the owners wanted to bring in a new regime because they wanted to wipe everything, the slate completely clean of John Gruden. I don't blame him one bit. I'm not saying I agree with the decision to let him go. I'm not saying it's right or wrong. I'm not saying I disagree with it either. It's not my place to uh, to give you my opinion. All I'm saying is when you when you go to start uh, to start over, you need to start over. So they scrapped the whole thing. They see the only reason that Rich Passaccia did not stay in Vegas was because they wanted to wipe the slate clean of all of John Gruden's uh, you know uh, coaching staff, I guess you could say. So here we go. At six. 62 years old, the Green Bay Packers come and knock him. And they hire Rich Passaccia as special teams coach, or special teams coordinator, I should say. We all know what cost us that playoff game last year. Guys, we've got an absolute dog in town at special teams coordinator, and I'm fired up about it. 62 years old, they said the guy can run circles around the players. He's got so much energy. He's fiery. Like he said, you heard uh, Jacob say a few weeks ago on our podcast that we did, we collabed on. He said something along the lines of, when the player's on the field, all I see are numbers. And and basically saying nobody's safe on the field. You make a mistake, you're getting corrected. We're getting it right or you'll play somewhere else. They're just numbers on the back of that jersey on the field. But when you walk into my office, 
Now I'm dealing with a human being. I really, really respect that. So our new special teams coordinator, they called in the best of the best when it comes to experience, guys. From 1983 to 2022, you do the math. I'm too stupid to. That's a long, long time coaching football. So I'm really excited about this coaching staff. I thought it'd be cool to kind of outline that. I just want to say thanks to everyone who contributed to the show today. You guys were awesome. Special thanks to the uh, the emailer today. Um, special thanks to the Twitter message. Um, you know, that came from the listener. And a big, big shout out to Mr. J.J. Leahy, guys. You know, Ryan taking a little bit of time, uh, having to take care of some personal stuff. Um, again, we don't know the details, don't care about the details, just uh, just praying that everything's okay with him. And um, if he needs anything, he knows where we're at. But in the meantime, J.J. getting these episodes put out for us as we create the content is huge. So I just want to say in front of everybody here, everybody listening, J.J., thank you so much for taking the time and working with me and getting these episodes out. Dude, you've been awesome. So with that, guys, that's the show. Like I said, just wanted to kind of thank everybody. Um, Tim, Tim on Twitter for the message, the email coming from Jack, you guys crushed it today. Awesome history segment there from that, that Twitter message, Tim, that, that really made my day, man. What a cool story. So with that being said, let's wrap up the show. Let's make sure we go out and be the change we want to see in the world until the cows come home, baby. Go pack, go. Uh-huh.